questions within the panel, and then there will be about half an hour for questions from the floor. So um, keep thinking of your questions, and in an hour's time, you'll be able to ask anything you like, and it will be a lively and interesting discussion, I'm sure. So we heard an economic perspective, a politicalist perspective, a legal perspective, and now I want to kind of focus in on a few points uh, that came up. And the first one that I want to focus in on is the issue of the uh, transit fees through Ukraine, as this was uh, an issue that was picked up as being um, critical to the competitiveness of Nord Stream 2, and also an issue where there is some uncertainty about what they will be and what happens after 2019. So I'm going to start with um, Georg. I think you have some um, reaction on this. Okay. Now, um, as we have seen from uh, Simon's presentation, uh, the transit fee through Ukraine is a, one essential argument for uh, building Nord Stream 2 because uh, it's deemed that Nord Stream 2 transit is cheaper than Ukrainian transit. Now, the, um, the point is that Ukrainian transit tariffs are currently set in the, in the 2009 uh, guest transit, uh, guest transit um, uh, contract between um, Ukraine and uh, and Russia, and this still applies. So the transit that uh, cost currently are still quite low for Gazprom, and Gazprom is using massively the, the Ukrainian transit at the time. And Ukraine only the Ukrainian regulator essentially only threatened that the uh, that the tariffs uh, will go up substantially. Afterwards, if there is Nord Stream 2 being built, because that means that currently the Ukrainian tra uh, gas transmission system will have to be depreciated on a very, very uh, fast uh, depreciation rate, because it will essentially turn worthless, and therefore all the capital costs that are still into the system are to be put on, uh, on, the, on the current users of the network. Now, um, that seems maybe logical or not, the, uh, Ukraine is a member of the energy community. The energy community the secretariat said that's, uh, that's perfectly fine with them, so the tariff setting is in line with, uh, uh, with, uh, with European legislation, and Ukraine plans to have significantly lower, because after the dep uh, quick depreciation in 2019, then the capital cost of the Ukrainian transit system will be very low, the, the remaining capital, and then the, um, the transit cost through Ukraine will be very, very low, and quite competitive with the, uh, with the Nord Stream 2 uh, transit tariffs. Um, the, uh, one of the arguments behind the system is not only um, um, this kind of uh, being competitive with Nord Stream 2, but it's also to have ammunition for the big negotiations that are happening currently in the Stockholm Court of Arbitration. There are two big cases running that uh, have a total bill of about, I think, 100 billion uh, euros that are kind of Gazprom and, and Naftogaz are, are claiming on each other. And so some of those things that seem illogical from an economic perspective might make more sense from an uh, from an economic uh, from a uh, from a purely legal legal standpoint as ammunition for the for the contract to uh, to close up my, my short intervention on that i think ukraine is not a security risk anymore ukraine has made substantial reforms in the past 3 years in terms of its uh, gas sector um, reforms Ukraine is a, a member of the energy community, which means it has to take the third energy package. 
um, it has had significant progress made on the independence of the regulator, on the unbundling of, uh, uh, of NAFTO gas. Um, it uh, managed to reduce its gas consumption substantially. Um, so essentially, Europe, that is a big donor to Ukraine, has all the leverage to make Ukraine behave in a, in a proper way and to ensure the transit. And um, so I would not be worried from a European perspective too much about Ukraine as a transit country anymore. Okay, so uh, Georg is not worried. Uh, I don't know if he's buying the gas uh, that's going to come through Ukraine. But, I live in East oh, Germany, so... Uh, okay, <laughs> I was just going to bring in Simon, and then I'm coming straight to you, Bobala. So, uh, Simon, are you agreeing with Georg? Um, yeah, I think it's an interesting argument, um, <clears throat> to, because it's not surprising that um, Naftogaz or Ukraine says that their transit fees will decrease after uh, 2019, but... And, and that's why we also have this sensitivity within our study, where we show what happens if they decrease their um, transit fees. But um, how does the situation look like? Currently, we see that in the past, there were kind of an, an equilibrium between Ukraine and Gazprom, or between Russia and Ukraine, um, in that form that, that Ukraine was dependent on Russian supply to satisfy their demand. And Russia was dependent on Ukrainian transits um, to, to, to bring the LTC contracted volumes um, to the EU. But now the situation has somehow changed. So Ukraine has built up, or also financed by, by Western countries, um, has, has financed these reverse flow capacities. And it's not any longer dependent on Russian supply. So it's possible to, to bring gas from the very west to the Ukraine, so it's independent of Russia, but if Nord Stream 2 will not be built, Russia is still dependent on Ukrainian transits. And of course, I mean, the Ukrainian transit fees are resulting in, in revenues of about 2 billion euros um, per year, and this is quite important for Ukraine. It's 2% of their GDP. And I think if they are in this strategic position, they may use it, so in my point of view. And, and, and that's always the problem if with countries, with transit countries, with intermediates uh, between supply and, and demand. And this is also, I mean, currently I'm working on a paper with my colleague Florian Weiser on the Southern Gas Corridor in Turkey, and, and this is the same issue there Turkey has the same market power. It's also a dominant player in this market. And if it would like, it can also, if the pipelines are built, then they are there. But however, who will, will um, prohibit Turkey to, to exert market power and to, to make much higher profits? Um, okay, so you're saying the concern is that um, if Nord Stream doesn't build, if Russia doesn't build Nord Stream 2, then Ukraine would retains market power over how Russian gas flows come through Ukraine, and it may abuse that market power. Market power is the issue that keeps coming up, because obviously all the other arguments we heard earlier were about uh, Gazprom abusing possible market power by building Nord Stream 2. So we're going to come back to market power. Um, thank you, Simon. Uh, Borrella, you wanted to come in. Yeah. 
And that's perfect that uh, you gave this last word, market power, because that's what uh, I would like to follow the, the argument that, uh, that was started by the two gentlemen before me. So I also think that this tariff issue is quite key, but uh, from a European consumer perspective, this is part of a big poker game between uh, Russia being in a monopoly position or in a, in a very strong uh, market position in some countries, and uh, between Ukraine having, in fact, um, uh, transit power um, uh, against uh, Russia. So, um, uh, in my view, the, the East, Eastern Europe shall... Uh, um, see, it's very good reason that, uh, and security of supply reason, and also the reason to keep gas prices low, to keep competition in its market, that it should keep the, um, the eastern flows through Ukraine as long as the tariff is, um, is um, uh, com competing with other uh, or competitive uh, with other uh, tariffs. So I I see that there is a room for starting competition in tariffs as well. So uh, if Nord Stream 2 is built, let's say, then the two tariffs can start to compete and that might make a good thing for the consumers as well. Um, I, I also think that uh, Ukraine uh, has good reasons to decrease the tariffs uh, when Nord Stream 2 is built and I'm sure they will do it. However, we also have to keep in mind that the Ukrainian system has to be modernized and sooner or later there will be a need for tariff increase based on European regulation. And it's, uh, and it's uh, um, again, no problem. But uh, I think that, uh, again, from the consumer point of view, um, all this uh, building a pipeline, decreasing tariffs, in, uh, starting to invest in new pipelines, this leaves us a little bit time and what I would send as a message uh, here is that uh, it, it would be a very, very good European interest to start to, um, to, to switch away from gas in these countries as much as possible. And that's my personal uh, view that this is the way out for Eastern Europe from this triangle. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Bobola. Well, you—that's the elephant in the room <laughs> about whether they should bring the gas at all. Um, Shimon. Yeah, one, one thing about the tariffs, um, uh, because you rightly said that, uh, that 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 tariffs will be competing for the volumes of gas through Nord Stream and through Ukraine. Is that that would be true if there is a fair and transparent tarification system applied to the Nord Stream too? Yes, and since. There is a problem with the uh, with the um, for the for the company to apply the uh, EU law and the third energy package in this respect to to the to the Nord Stream two. Then I would doubt if the fair tarification can be provided. Yes, this is the this is this is quite an important, uh, if not the crucial, uh, thing about this. Okay, um, Sebastian, are the tariffs through Nord Stream two likely to be public in any way? Um, well, you see, the point is the market will decide w what kind of gas to buy from where or not. And uh, the more suppliers, the more supply routes there are, and the more in interconnection on the internal market, um, the better the position of the European consumer. And if, if uh, let's say, the transport tariff for 
um, Nord Stream 2 would be so expensive that the gas is outpriced on the market, then nobody will buy it. The whole idea of market liberalization of the first, second, and third energy packages has been that it is the investor who carries the risk of, uh, of, of, of projects, investing in projects that supply the energy demand. And the same goes for this project. So the commercial risk is fully, fully carried by the consortium. Okay, but at the moment we know that actually there's only one company in the consortium. I mean, it's only Gazprom who's going to be paying tariffs on Nord Stream 2. At, the, at present, yes. Uh, the negotiations between the project partners are still ongoing. What kind of arrangement will be in place uh, for the cooperation in Nord Stream 2? But uh, the ownership currently is with Gazprom, yes. Okay, so we're hearing that basically uh, Russia will know what the tariffs will be uh, through Nord Stream 2, and they will be entering negotiations at some point with Ukraine, perhaps, depending on the outcome of the Stockholm case on uh, transit and supply. Um, so we mentioned market abuse and market power several times. I mean, the possibility for transit countries to abuse power, the possibility for supplier countries to abuse power. So I'd like to bring in uh, Severin. Um, everything I heard was essentially people are concerned that market abuse will go on. And the, it sounds like they don't have confidence in the current regulation or legal frameworks or the current rules to protect them from uh, market abuse by a supplier or a transit country. Is that fair? Is it something we should be concerned about? If you allow, I would just have two comments on, on the Ukrainian case first, because I think this is not a purely economic one, but it is also a political question how to deal with that. Um, the one thing is, um, it's of course, the, the stability of the regime, uh, as Georg said, three years now. That is something you can trust, but I would say there's also uh, doubts on the stability of the regime in the present kind of... Yeah, yeah, yeah. On... on, 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 on well, yeah. The Absolutely. Yeah, but it's still three years, um, so that that's not a lot of time. The second question is: uh, Are we in the position that we have to decide wh whether there is a transit monopoly uh, on the Ukraine or not? So, is it a, is it kind of the European decision to grant this uh, a transit monopoly or not? I think this is also a relevant one, which we. Uh, which we should ask ourselves and which influences, of course, negotiations in 2019. Um, and uh, finally, of course, if you lock uh, the Ukraine uh, and Russia into the situation and we uh, kind of away from, from gas and energy, uh, there's also an issue about the interest uh, uh, of the Russian government in what's happening in the Ukraine if you're dependent on this uh, country and you could ask yourself what is the effect of that. So what, what does the Russian government then want to do in the Ukraine? I mean, this is, I think, also politically uh, a very relevant um, argument. To, sorry, to come to your, <laughs> to your question. Uh, I think, yes, indeed, um, there's obviously a lack of trust uh, right now. Uh, some partners in the EU, in the Commission, uh, in uh, dealing with uh, antitrust issues. So we have this case right now looking into what is Gazprom has been done, what it is doing, and um, I'm always a bit surprised why uh, 
those who say the Commission should stop uh, Nord Stream uh, 2 on regulatory uh, reasons do not trust uh, the Commission to uh, have market oversight in the market and prevent that on the uh, kind of internal dimension um, of the uh, um, gas market. Um, Shimon, do you have a view on how well the market abuse uh, provisions in the EU work? I mean, are you concerned that uh, Gazprom has the possibility to abuse its power with no um, recriminations? Thank you. It's, um, uh, one comment first. Uh, uh, it's not about... Uh, for, because there was also in the discussion said that uh, EU, there is a question if EU should ban the project or not ban. It's not that case. It's, it's, EU has no competence to say that this project is not allowed and other is allowed. Yes? It's about the conformity with the regulations and the conformity with the, with the law and taking into consideration the economics. And, and that's all. It's not about banning one project and, and, and allowing another. Yes? That, this, is, this is a very important, important uh, part. As you ask about the uh, conformity uh, and dominance of the one entity at the market, yes, we, we are quite experienced in this, in this respect since we are, uh, uh, according to the Commission's assessments and digital competitions assessments, we are suffering from all the three abuses. That were uh, that were raised in the anti antitrust proceedings uh, towards towards Gazprom, so um, this is a well. That, that's why Poland is also very much in favour of more transparency to the market, and um, that's why we are also advocating um, to to enhance the provisions of the regulation on security of gas supply that is being right now um, discussed between the Parliament, Council and the European Commission to, to allow the competent authorities and the Commission to assess if in the private contracts yes, there are no abusive clauses causing that the market is segmented between the uh, monopolies. This is a very important part because as the, the, the core issues about the uh, antitrust proceedings is about the segmentation of the market and using this power uh, of uh, abuse the laws through the abusive clauses, etc. It influences also the, 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 the prices, etc., etc. So that's why we are, we are um, uh, monitoring this, 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 those proceedings very, very closely. And we are also advocating to put more transparency to the market to, to enforce the compliance with the EU law of the provisions, not only of the, of the intergovernmental agreements, but also of the private contracts. Okay, Georg, you wanted to come in? I, I would have a rather theoretical remark about kind of what the game is. Uh, it, it has been partially mentioned. So the game, in my view, is there is cheap gas being produced in Russia. It's transported at relatively low cost through transit countries or uh, directly, and it's sold at a very high price in the EU. Now, there is a lot of money to be made into this game, and the question is how this rent from cheap gas to, uh, uh, to, uh, to high-paying consumers is essentially shared between the three parties, the supply country, the, uh, the consumer country, and the transit country. Now, there's different tools to essentially uh, kind of shift the balance on who gets how much of this rent. There is 
the export monopoly of Russia, which is kind of one tool to keep a larger rent in, uh, inside Russia and, uh, and also export taxation. There is competition policy in the EU that tries to keep a larger part of the rent inside the EU. There is regulatory framework in the EU that tries to keep a larger share of the rent for the European consumers. Um, and there is then behind all that the question is, kind of how much of those tools you can actually implement because the market dynamics are there. And in 10 years ago, it was the market dynamics were strongly in favor of Russia. Russia managed to essentially kind of still continue with abusive uh, behavior and nobody could really do something about that. Now the situation has changed partly due to new infrastructure in the EU, partly due to renewables, partly due to the decline in gas consumption uh, in, uh, due to the crisis. And now the EU, with this increase in, uh, in power in the, in the bigger game, can change the, uh, the rules of the game in order to keep a larger share of the rent inside uh, the European Union. And the change in the rules of the game that have been tried is with the, uh, with the competition policy case against Gazprom that was unsinkable 10 years before, that have been uh, done with uh, implementing the third energy package and with, uh, uh, with other measures. Now, one of the questions is kind of is preventing Nord Stream 2 something that would fall into that category of keeping a larger share of the, of the rent in this bigger game inside the EU? And I would argue, yes, it is, because essentially price discrimination that, uh, according to, uh, to, to my view, is allowed by that would help to, uh, to get Russia a larger rent, which we should not allow. Okay. Um, Sebastian asked for floor. I'm just going to bring him in, a, bring him in, in a moment. Um, but... Uh, Shimon was just saying it's not about banning or not banning the project, whereas you're saying there might be an EU policy to prevent Nord Stream 2 on the basis that it's not in the EU's economic um, benefit based on keeping this rent idea within the EU. Is that right? Okay. Sebastian. Yes, thanks. Um, two points. Uh, firstly, about the um, we, there was a lot of a lot of talk about market power and um, abuse of that. I'd like to um, argue a little bit uh, in favor of uh, the common market and the internal market and trust in that. I think we've seen uh, in the last years a very uh, successful development of the internal market. A lot of studies show that. Uh, Vice President Shevkovich also referred to that uh, last week in his um, energy union speech. Um, the liquidity on the market has increased, the interconnection have increased, and uh, Russian gas is competing not is, is, is competing with, with many other suppliers of Russian gas on this market. It can be transported in different corners of the EU, um, but but it's uh, it's not standing on its own. So we don't live in a world where somebody can flick over a switch and the lights go out. We live in a world where, where suppliers compete with each other, where gas supplies are coming onto the internal market from different directions. But gas is not only com competing with gas from other suppliers. For example, electricity. Gas, gas is used a lot for electricity production. If, let's say, in the imaginary case, there's a shortcut in any part of the internal market on gas supply for electricity, then you also have a whole number of increased electricity connections which allow to import electricity produced by 
not just gas, uh, be it renewables, be it coal, be it nuclear from your neighboring countries. So this imaginary power of one single external supplier who has, uh, has a, a tight grip of European consumers is simply not the reality anymore in today's market. And maybe one, one interesting figure to that, the average share of Russian gas in European energy consumption is about 6%. This, this is the, the factual reality, and uh, that puts it a little bit into perspective what we are actually talking about here. Okay, so Alan, you want to come on that? Yeah, <laughs> I think it's a brilliant um, PR strategy. Uh, what you're doing essentially is you're taking liquidity of the northwestern European market and projecting it into Central Eastern Europe and saying, well, we've got this more liquid market and we can do all of these great things. The point is, and if you look at the stress tests which conducted by the Commission, you know, there is a huge difference between the well-supplied, multi-source, northwestern Europe with, uh, with a significant degree of uh, liquidity in the hubs and central and eastern Europe. Remember, in all of this, the, and this is another issue about the fact that one of the justifications is, well, the amount of gas going through Groningen is going to fall and we need more gas. The gas isn't going to northwestern Europe. It is going, 50 BCM is going along Ugal, following the Opel pipeline, it's going into central eastern Europe. So what they're doing is essentially reinforcing the market dominance where they're already dominant. And that is really difficult. And there's a real sense of the Potemkin liberalization of the European market here. And I think one example of this is if you look at uh, the Opal decision and what's really happening. You know, Commissioner Sekovic talks about uh, how we've got all these auctions and the new Opal exemption decision and how fantastic this is and how liberal it is. Well, it isn't because it is, it is all liberalization talk and not liberalization reality. The point is, when you go, you look at Opal, the Entry point is at Greifswald. The only company can enter that because the Gazprom export monopoly is Gazprom. The gas goes through there, and really, all of the auctions, which are proposed in the Opel exemption uh, decision, are all going to end up substantially in Gazprom's hands or those of Gazprom's allies. So, and then in addition to which, because when you do yearly auctions, you can don't just get one year, you can, when you do a yearly auction, do for all 15 years, you essentially can lock down 80% of the additional capacity for 15 years. So what you've really got is substantial foreclosure by a dominant player, which mimics the old long-term supply contracts. And that's why I call it Potemkin liberalization. And this is a use of the rules in order to deliver where we were before, and to, to ensure that we split the market. I mean, in fact, you could refer to what Nord Stream 2 and Opal extension as, as Europe's energy yalta. And essentially, yes, there'll be a liberalized European pro-real market in Northwestern Europe and Western Europe. And then there'll be something else which mimics the position it was before 2004 in Central and Eastern Europe. And I think that is actually what we're really looking at here. And all the liberalization talk, it's really good PR, but when you actually dig into the reality, the reality is quite different to what they're suggesting. In fact, it's really almost the opposite. Alan, can I just come back on that? Um, would, if they foreclose the market, would they not simply 
undergo another antitrust investigation? I mean, what we're saying is, why why would they be allowed to do that and well, get away with it? Why would EU well, law not kick in? Well, the question is, is does EU law uh, no, any longer apply uniformly and uh, effectively to all subjects across the territory of the Union? If you read the Opal exemption decision, you have to say that, I mean, it doesn't actually, I mean, I should say it'll get struck down by the court, I think. But the Commission's willingness to shoehorn a political fix through the provisions of the EU liberalisation regulations opens that to question. And my other point, I'll just finish, you mentioned antitrust. Mm. You've got the Gazprom antitrust case. I have a serious number of questions about that. Can, if you look at that case, that case is running, has been running since September 2011 when they did the initial dawn raids. The question I've got about that is this. Can you imagine any other case where you've got a major dominant company under antitrust investigation and then it makes threats to some of its customers to not sell the produce it sells to them to other companies, which it did in 2014 and 2015 when it threatened uh, Hungary, Poland and Slovakia over reverse flows to Ukraine. And it actually reduced the amount of gas to them. The Commission did nothing. More recently, Poland is talking about the issue to do with the Yamal pipeline. And uh, the, what the Polish allegation is that the, the, um, they were told that if they proceed with full application of the third energy package to the Yamal pipeline, the amount of gas that will go through Yamal will be reduced. Well, hold on a second here. Is there not an antitrust abuse of dominance issue? Where is DG Comp? And the point about all of this is, and this raises an issue which I think is, is something which will be raised from a US perspective, that there appears to be one EU antitrust law for American software companies and another for Russian gas companies. And in any event, EU law applies differentially between Western Europe and uh, Central and Eastern Europe. And that there is actually no longer any substantial application of the ACE communautaire uniformly against all, in relation to all subjects of union law across the territory. And the only, only entity which seems to be willing to contemplate the full application is in the European Court of Justice. It certainly isn't with the guardian of the treaties, which is supposed to be the Commission. Sebastian, do you still want to come in? Actually, on, on the previous point, um, uh, I agree with what some previous speakers have said, that there are still lacks in the interconnection, especially in uh, Eastern and Southeastern Europe. But uh, that's a question that will not be resolved with or without Nord Stream 2. That's a question of uh, the EU itself. Um, what we can do as... Um, uh, the development of a ex new external supply route is ensure that there's enough liquidity on the market so it's worth building interconnections and moving gas around to where it's needed in the EU. But the part of building those interconnections, making sure that enough of gas can be available at competitive uh, conditions in Southeast and Eastern Europe as well, um, that's up, that's up to, to members of the EU itself. And I may just recall uh, what I said earlier, since Nord Stream 1 came on stream in 2011 and 2012, uh, prices in southeastern Europe have started to align with the German price. So um, the effect of the additional liquidity from Nord Stream 1 to the internal market is the exact opposite of uh, what many at the time had predicted amongst them, Alan Riley. 
okay. Well, it may have had something to do with the collapse in the pri gas price because of the link to the oil price, but that's another story. Okay. Um, actually, Shimon asked first, so we'll go to Shimon and we'll come back to you. Uh, thank you very much. It's uh, um, actually with this liquidity and the concentration um, issue, it is. Um, the picture from the very, very high dimension is different than from the perspective of the regions. As, as also Alan said, uh, you can say that liquidity generally raised, but when you look into the Commission's papers in the State of the Energy Union, yes, um, on, on which we are now working, um, in the, the assessments of the, of, the, of the market situation, it is completely opposite. The, uh, the, the, the liquidity in the Central Eastern Europe and in some countries in the West is, uh, is lower right now than it used to be uh, a few years ago. And the, 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 the dominance of monopolies and the bigger companies is also bigger in eight countries than it used to be five years ago. So um, you have to look at that from the perspective of the regions and the countries on which the new investment, like, like Nord Stream, South Stream and the others, will, um, uh, will, will affect. Yeah? So this is a very important part. I can also uh, say some things about the Opal uh, pipeline, but... Uh, yeah, that's, we'll come back to Opal, but yeah. just on that point, are you saying that the internal energy market has failed Central and Southeast Europe? Uh, well, it's... Uh, not at all. It's it's not the failure. It's a, it's a process. Yes, it's a process, long-term process. I remember that, that the commission was uh, was supposed to finish the work on the internal energy market in 90s. Yes, so uh, well, this is a process that we are working on, and this is it's very hard to put the deadline that okay today we have just succeeded and finished the, the working on it. It's just if we want to make sure that this process would go in the in the positive direction, that the law that we all negotiated will be applied in the proper way on the energy market, we have to be consequent and have the equal footing for the Yamal, South Stream, North Stream to apply the law and to, to see how the, this inf those infrastructure projects can operate under the same legal regime. And the exemption on Opal is a good example of deviating from this from this direction. And that's why we, we, we went to court um, to, to, to say that this is, uh, ultimately, it's, it's, it's wrong to deviate from the, from, the, from the provisions of the gas directive, especially from the Article 36. Yes, and I can carry on on that, uh, but it's uh, for the later. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I have so many things to react on, but let's start with this. Uh, uh, great offer that we will have more capacity by Nord Stream 2 and uh, Europe has a wider choice. I don't know if I could make also a poll in this room. Who believes that after building Nord Stream 2, Gazprom will deliver gas through the Ukraine? So you're asking, yeah. once, so once Gazprom builds Nord Stream 2, how many people think they'll still use Ukraine as so a transit route? Well, let's and okay. Then I, I make make it more precise. So uh, let's assume that Gazprom has built Nord Stream two, and uh, has and and Ukraine has decreased the tariffs. It's cheaper to deliver to deliver gas through Ukraine than through Nord Stream two, 
And uh, what do you think? Um, uh, will the same share of, uh, of gas supply go through Nord Stream 2 and Ukraine as of today? Or the question is, who thinks that Gazprom will base its decision on delivering surprise, not on these commercial uh, facts, but on other political issues? And who thinks that it will prefer to use the Nord Stream 2 option even if it's slightly more expensive for it. So that's my question. Who thinks that... <laughs> do, you, do you want to actually... We'll have to, sim we'll have to simplify it, I think. Okay. Um, okay, we can simplify then, Gaz it. then Gazprom can also vote. Okay, so we simplify it. We s okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> If you have Very quick poll. Okay. If Ukraine was to offer cheaper transit fees than Nord Stream 2, do you think Russia would send the gas through Ukraine because it would be cheaper? Raise your hand if you think Russia would send the gas through Ukraine if Ukraine was cheaper than Nord Stream 2. Raise your hand. Okay. Uh, okay. Just uh, Severin, you wanted to come in, and then uh, Simon, we'll come to you. Yeah, I just wanted to raise the question: What's the vision of the development of the market? Uh, if we, uh, if I listen to Alan, uh, then we don't have a market oversight by the Commission. It's not done uh, correctly. Is that the, the 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 perspective? And second, what 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 is then? Second one, what is then the, the idea? So we will have in the future basically locked in regional markets in the EU where not competition is setting the price, but uh, the price is basically uh, artificially increased so to keep uh, competition with Gazprom from these markets out. Is that the, the idea? Or, um, and, and finally, the, the, the lack of uh, the lack uh, or the concentration in markets in uh, Eastern, Southeastern Europe, I mean, that's an issue of infrastructure development of the past and the inability uh, of governments uh, to introduce competitive uh, pricing in these regions, but not uh, so much a, a question of the last couple of years, uh, EU policy. So we're mixing cause and, uh, and effect uh, right here, don't we? Okay, well, a number of things. One is, of course, we've already got some indication of the unwillingness of the Commission to apply the rules in the Opal exemption decision, which is definitely worth the read. Um, in terms of, I mean, I could go through all of that. Perhaps that, 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 that I, I, I shouldn't do that at this point. But I mean, it's interesting that the Court of Justice itself has uh, already uh, adopted a suspension decision. As I say, the only one of the criteria for that is you have to have a, uh, a prima facie case. You have to be able to actually show that it's likely to be overturned uh, in final judgment. So you, you, we have some sense that the Commission isn't doing its role anyhow, and I could add to that substantially if perhaps somebody would like to ask me a question about that. But the point about this is that, <clears throat> yes, all the interconnectors are not all in place in Central and Eastern Europe, but substantially a lot of them are, and that's why the Ukrainians have been able to run reverse flows across, uh, 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 across to Ukraine from Central and Eastern Europe. 
the problem is, is that once you actually have a situation where you've got the funnel is for the gas, all comes through Gazprom-owned and controlled uh, infrastructure, or owned and controlled with its allies, uh, the, um, uh, through Nord Stream and through uh, Opal, it's going to be much more difficult to be able to run those reverse flows. Uh, there's going to be much more gas from information and control over, over the systems, and the cost of doing reverse flows is much greater as you've got additional transit fees. So the whole thing becomes much more difficult. Uh, the, I say all the interconnections aren't in place, and that makes it uh, trickier. But to the extent the interconnections are in place, you are still in a position where you are going to be in a much more dependent supply. There's a concentration of routes and an increasing supply dependence, contrary to the energy union policy of uh, increased uh, diversification of routes and diversification of supply. And the other element to this, which we haven't touched on, which is really important, is the effective, you know, this is essentially strategic overinvestment by Gazprom in order to undermine the development of any alternative infrastructures. So you've got the increase, uh, any potential increase in the Polish LNG terminal goes out of the window, the full complete mission of the North-South Corridor with an LNG terminal at Kirk goes out of the window. The uh, building of a, a Baltic pipeline bringing gas from Norway, all of that goes out the window. So you're essentially what you're doing is you are investing to ensure that nobody else invests and creating market dominance. And I think that is what you're doing here, and that is what the Commission uh, and Germany seem to be willing to uh, permit. And I think that is, um, <clears throat> that is what you're, you're looking at here, because the point about it is, is the, the, the interconnections and the investments will not take place once you, do the, you carry out this level of, uh, of enormous capacity increase and take out the, uh, the alternative transit routes as well. That's what you're looking at you're doing here. And that's why I said you're looking at two Europes. You're having one Europe where there'll be all those alternative sources of supply coming in, the LNG, the Norwegian, the Russian, the Groningen, perhaps some from Algeria. And then on the other side, there'll be only one source of supply. And the incentives to build additional interconnectors and additional uh, routes disappears. So that's why I said you actually end up with two energy Europes. A liberalised energy Europe and a kind of Potemkin energy liberalised Europe, where they talk liberalisation, but it's something else. Okay, uh, Simon, and then, uh, yes? Uh, yeah, okay. yeah. I just want to add um, something to the question um, Bobola asked before. Um, I don't know, I think the question doesn't make that much sense, because if Nord Stream 2 is built, so the costs are sunk, and the pipeline belongs to Gazprom, so it will be in each case cheaper than the Ukrainian route could ever be because it's also a very new and efficient pipeline. So the decision about the transit fees should be made before from Ukrainian perspective. No. Okay, so Georg wants to come in and then Shimon after. Yeah, yeah, uh, one thing, thanks. Um, um, uh, about uh, cheaper and more expensive pipelines, uh, we were asked several times as Poland yes, to, to allow the construction of Yamal 2. Cheap. We will benefit on transit fees, uh, we will benefit on security of supply because we will be very important transit country then, and no disruptions would be foreseen in the foreseeable future. But for the reasons that we are now discussing, 
uh, about the applicability of law, about the economics, about our trust and solidarity cases, about our relations with Ukraine and with other partners, uh, we denied several times. There was a one uh, proposal to go in, uh, along the Yamal one, yes, to the German market and then further. Another proposal to go just after our borders straight downwards towards Slovakia. And we also resigned from, 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 that, from that proposal. For those reasons, not economic reasons that it will be cheaper, yeah? because we knew that then we would open the floor for the another collateral damages that would be inflicted later on, on us, on our partners in the Union, on, on Ukraine, and on other, well, geopolitics that would be, uh, well, just release your imagination what could happen, yes, if the costs of the crisis would be lower for, 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 for our Eastern partners. Yes, because now they are very high, because then the transit things about the, the, the supplying Germany, other uh, European markets, the costs of the crisis situation are very, very high. But if we um, change those costs into zero, then I dare say the crisis situation would be much more frequent than they are today. And that's why also, taking from this perspective, we, 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 we refused. Yes? So this is also about the principles and the more long-term perspective of cooperation. So talking only about the, which pipeline is cheaper or which pipeline is more expensive, it's a very, very short-term approach. Okay, so you're saying you're looking at the security of supply, longer-term security of supply issues. Can I just ask, um, has it affected your decisions about the LNG terminal at Swinichi? The, the Polish LNG terminal that I can't pronounce. But, but what affected? The question is, um, are you still planning to invest in the LNG terminal at, for Poland? It's, it's, a, it's going to be more expensive than Russian gas because it always is, but maybe there are other elements involved. Well, this is the, 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 the strategic decision was, uh, was made uh, just after the Ukrainian crisis yes, in 2009 uh, about uh, putting online all the projects that were planned in the, in the past. Because Terminal was planned also a few years before. Baltic Pipe was planned in the, at the beginning of, the, of, this, of this millennium. Yes? But it was not uh, implemented due to other reasons, yes, due to commercial reasons, due to some, 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 some other circumstances. But after the, 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 the crisis in 2009 and after the, some other damages that were made also in 2014 years, uh, we've decided that we have to just simply um, invest into this infrastructure because this is a part of our homework as a member state. Yes? This is a, in 2009 when there was a discussion about the SOS regulation that is right being, now being reviewed. There was a problem of the free riders, yes, and many countries raised this problem that, well, some member states would like to um, uh, use our infrastructure for their benefits. And this is, and today, after those investments, not only in Poland, yes, uh, not, not only in integral, uh, internal grid, but also for the uh, sake of the, our other member states. Those investment, investments were made in the last five years in several countries in Central and Eastern Europe for the billions of euros. And now, free riding is not the case anymore when we are discussing the SOS regulation. So it is good, yes? And, and, and internal market is also the perfect. We have not invented anything better than that. 
Without that, we would not have even discussion about Nord Stream 2 because it would exist already. <laughs> yes, so this is, this, this, this is not the case. But one thing about what Alan said about um, uh, long-term antitrust proceedings, yes, that they are very lengthy proceedings. We also proposed with several member states, and the Commission proposed it also a year ago, to, um, uh, in the SOS regulation, to make the compliance checks much quicker. But this is, since the council consists of the member states, it's, uh, uh, there was a huge opposition towards that, yes? to make the more, to, to give more transparency and compliance to the contracts and to the AGAs. So this is a long-term process that we are now uh, proceeding with. Yeah. Okay, Gail, you were wanting to come in. Yeah, um, I wanted to, to put up the question whether we have the right tools to essentially uh, let the internal market function in a way to, uh, in, in which it has been described to essentially counter the effects of any strategic uh, uh, market power abuse. And the first tool I would like to, uh, to ask is in terms of incentives for pipeline infrastructure investments in the EU. My question here would be, do we really have inside the internal market have the right incentives that maybe pipelines inside one country that are to the benefit of other countries are being built if they do not benefit the first country. So we have some tools in terms of cross-border uh, cross uh, cost allocation, but those mechanisms do not really work well. So think of 2009. 2009 showed that there are bottlenecks in bringing gas to the east, and those bottlenecks are largely happening inside Germany. Now, how do you get incentives to build those pipelines uh, inside Germany is the first question. And the second question is, well, if you have to go from a purely commercial case, as soon as you build sometimes strategic pipelines, the strategic value of the pipeline is essentially kind of lost. So it's like the LNG terminal in Lithuania. As soon as it's built, its commercial case breaks down. As soon as you build the pipeline to help Eastern Europe against uh, market discrimination, then the price differential between West and East breaks down and the pipeline is not used anymore. So how do we manage to get those pipelines that are needed to counter any uh, uh, price discrimination in countries that are not even suffering from that? And I think that's, uh, uh, that's a complex one. The, uh, the second point is in terms of um, competition policy. I think Ellen lined it out nicely the, uh, the issue of uh, uh, a large market player investing to deter entry of other market players. And I think it's uh, in microeconomic uh, textbooks, it's there for, for 50 years, this issue that if you have a monopoly somewhere, then you ch uh, tend to overinvest in order to deter the entry of somebody else because you can always outcompete him as soon as he tries to, to come into the market. And I wonder to which degree in European competition law, essentially this behavior of deterring investment is uh, to some degree uh, allowed or not allowed. I simply don't know that. But, I mean, one of the interesting questions which uh, the Central Eastern European states could look at is filing a second complaint uh, in relation to Nord Stream on, the, on that argument, on strategic overinvestment. That would be one option. Nord Stream 1 or Nord Stream 2? Well, possibly Nord 2, but Nord Stream 2, I think, is where you would go. Yeah, strategic overinvestment by, by a dominant player. Okay, so um, I just want to check, um, we are going to move to questions from the floor in a moment, and I want to check how many questions there are in the room, so I can judge. Can you raise your hand if you have a question? 
Excellent. I will come to the questions more quickly. Um, I think, uh, Severin, you wanted the floor? And so, Severin and then Sebastian. Very shortly. I think we, we do have a very different understanding here on how the internal market, or what, what's the basis of the, the basis of what the, uh, what the natural gas market in Europe is right now. So uh, if, I, if I understand that right, what uh, Shimon and Alan are saying, then we are moving towards a politically decided uh, gas mix where we basically say we want a certain quota from that source and a certain quota from that source because if we don't do that, then we are endangering uh, or incentivizing uh, uh, behavior that is kind of anti-market. And I find that a little bit fascinating because we are always referring to uh, what, what is actually in the law. So what, what, what is our common sense in the uh, European energy policy? And the common sense is that we have an open market with, uh, where we do infrastructure developments and where we uh, in, increase cross-border trade. And this is exactly what, if I follow you, is not going to happen. Because in your perspective, that is endangering competition. Um, so that's, uh, that's a little bit of a strange perspective, if I may say. Yes, I can be very brief because I actually uh, agree fully with the comment just made by Severin. Um, it's a little surprising to hear how, how uh, many calls there are on this panel for stronger state intervention and allocation of quotas and uh, state control when the whole idea of um, market liberalization was um, to let the market forces compete, to have less regulation and less state involvement. So um, I, I actually side here with the analysis of the European Commission that that uh, the internal energy market has made, made great progress, and I believe, based on this approach, it's, it will continue to do so if we don't allow going back to those times where, where uh, states and central players then decide tariffs and allocation and quotas. Rather, I, I, sorry, sorry, sorry. I think I, I never called for state invention, but I really thank for Simon um, uh, giving us the economic argument, what we all felt uh, without ec uh, much economics, that uh, uh, that it will not be the Ukrainian route will not be used. So actually, I feel that uh, in your argument that you bring more choice to Europe in terms of routes, I think it's not valid. That is rather ironic. I mean, you know, you say we want liberalisation. But it's a bit like St. Augustine, let me chase, but not yet. Because, of course, yes, they say this, but, of course, you know, Opal itself, they don't want to apply the rules, they want an exemption, they don't want liberalisation. Nord Stream 1, Nord Stream 2, somehow EU law doesn't apply. So EU law, yes, we want liberalisation, but not for Gazprom. Uh, and, you know, or you look, at, you look at Nell, where you have this amazing situation where they treated the pipeline as an extension pipeline. There's nothing in the legislation which provides for that. The Commission criticises it. They call it an extension pipeline to escape the operation of the rules. So there's nothing in the legislation which provides for this. The Commission criticises the German regulator, but does nothing about it. And it's pushed under the carpet. So I say, the, the, there are rules, but they're not applied. And I think the, the, the issue here is that there are two elements. One is the real application of the rules, and then the, the real application of the liberalisation rules, which are not being applied. 
And then there's the application of the antitrust rules, which again have not been applied. And the unwillingness to follow through. And so this ultimately comes down to this issue about the uniform application of the Aki, that it applies to some subjects. If you're Bulgarian and you do a deal with a pipeline, you'll have the commission coming after you. If you're German, you won't. And essentially, we have a differential application of union law which is what is at the heart of this. And this is why it actually becomes actually much bigger than uh, merely about pipelines. And as I said earlier, right at the beginning of all of this, if, if, if the Foreign Office was in control of Brexit and not number 10, uh, I would imagine this would be being deployed very effectively against, uh, against uh, France, Germany, and the European Commission. But uh, f uh, for, the, for the Commission and Germany's look, uh, number 10 is in control and not the Foreign Office. I'll stop there. So. Okay, so, um, okay, hold on. <laughs> it, it's a shame that we don't have the Commission here because a lot of it is going back to the Commission. Um, again, so there are questions in the room. I will, get to, I will come to you in one minute. You have one minute for your very concise intervention. Just, just about the quotas. It's completely, no, I haven't even mentioned that. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's, the more about the dominance is also not prohibited on the market, yes? Dominance of one company is not prohibited on the market, on the internal market. The abuse of dominance position, this is something that is not in line with the, with the treaties and not in line with the secondary law. And what we are now discussing is to avoid the situation when abuse of dominance position is possible. So, if there are no interconnections, if there are no transparency in the contracts, if there are abusive clauses in the contracts, then abuse of dominance position is more likely. And this is what we are striving for, to apply law that we all agreed on and is a, a result of the certain consensus in the Council and the Commission and the Parliament from 2009, to apply it to avoid abuse of dominance position. There's nothing about quotas, nothing about the uh, market share. It's about the fair competition. Okay, yes. I mean, essentially, it is abuse of dominance. It is abuse of market dominance that is illegal, not market dominance in itself. And your point is, it should be designed to make that abuse more difficult before you even start. Questions? Right, let's start from the back. So uh, we'll take a few at a go. So the, the, the chap with the microphone, because he has a microphone, and then the, the man behind him uh, afterwards. Hi, uh, Thomas Simonaritas from APCO Worldwide. I've been very surprised by uh, how surreal some arguments here were, were. and especially uh, the argument about the fact that this is not a political project because it's actually financed commercially. Uh, I don't know how you call Gazprom if it's not the financial arm of the Kremlin. I mean, and everybody knows that Gazprom is not acting on the market as a commercial company, but for a purely political project. But a question? Yes, I'm coming to, the, to that. So you've got a foreign government investing several billions of euros on the market. This is a pure political project. There's no technical needs because there's enough capacity. Gazprom is not caring about whether what is cheaper or, uh, or not for the routes. Ukraine routes is probably cheaper, actually. So my question to the panel is that, given the fact it's a political project, is that worrying or not? And is that worrying that it comes from a state that is actually uh, running active propaganda against the EU, against the German uh, leadership, financing the extreme, extreme right? And could we have a look at, from a geopolitical perspective 
And is this a Trojan horse uh, for the internal EU market and the future of the EU? Thank you. Okay, and then the man behind. The man's name is Angelos Karlaftis, Epaphos Advisors. I have uh, three que two questions and one statement and one observation. The observation is about the democratic procedures. Um, can you either speak more slowly or hold the microphone closer? Around, I can't hear All around well. Europe. Yeah. All around Europe right now in the, in the Commission, in a lot of think tanks. Uh, half an hour for the audience, as you call it, which are citizens, and good morning citizens, uh, is very less for the democracy. One hour for them and half an hour for the panel, it's good. Usually to the other panels I participate. Uh, about the questions and the statement, uh, the questions have to do, uh, we are mentioning Russia, which is a partner, which is in Europe, when it gives us uh, the 6% we are depending right now of our energy consumption from the Russian uh, market, which they can change their name, they can change their company, they call it Gazprom, they call it whatever they want. This is the situation on the gas sector, which is not uh, renewable energy. It's a fossil primitive energy, which we have the technology right now to change it to 3%. This is up to us. It's the market, as the gentleman has, uh, has told. It's the market who can, who can discuss this. For the moment, uh, Gazprom is playing. Uh, the Germans, they are constructing 200,000 200, pipelines of very good quality. Uh, it, it and the question problem. is? The question is, why should we care for Russia so much when Russia is a, is a very, is the best player in the gas uh, energy sector, when we can invest like the England can do in other sectors and can compete this energy of, uh, of, uh, of uh, gas. And also Gazprom is here. Why don't the Gazprom, they don't speak? Second question is, uh, is uh, about uh, 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 the process uh, which uh, this project is, is going to be done, isn't it? You have to hold the microphone closer. Yes, the, 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 this project is going to be done. It's a private sector. It's invested, everything is okay. The, the five countries, the legislation is followed very well. And uh, the question? There are some cross-border maybe differences which the European Union is going to resolve. About the, uh, the, the ESPO convention, the consultations of Poland and Lithuania, it's only, only consultations. We cannot take them, in the, we can take them uh, into consideration or not, it's up to us. Why do we discuss this, this uh, thing, which already is going to be executed into 2019? And it's very good for 25 million uh, households in, the, in Europe. Uh, and the statement is, we are working on a cooperation between Europe, Russia and Turkey. Over there we think that will be the benefit for the European citizens. Those of you who have an interest, you can find me at the end of the... Of the Thank you very much. Okay, thank you. I think uh, well, I'll take one more question, if there's another question from our representative here. It's behind you, coming. Uh, thank you, Vyacheslav Knezhnitsky, Naftagaz. Uh, well, there's a few observations here. That's about the uh, monopoly, first of all, in the Ukrainian mm -hmm. transit. Uh, that is, uh, are you aware that there is an antitrust uh, case against Gazprom in Ukraine, not only in the Euro European Union? also on that. And the dominance is as follows, that you, uh, Gazprom uses its power, you see, not to allow other traders uh, to, 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 transit, to transit gas via Ukraine. That's the case. So we think that, you see, something should be done not here, not in Ukraine, but in Russia. And sanctions applied against the regime, not against the government, the democratic government in Ukraine. And that's why they do not allow other players to come uh, to, the, to the transit side in Ukraine. And also, uh, thank you very much to Alan and Georg, because they really, to their credit, they very well described the situation, especially 
with the <coughs> transit, uh, transit fee. The transit fee is the uh, regulatory assessed based fee, and that's we are going to apply it if the Stockholm case uh, finishes. Uh, well, we expect it in two months on supply contract and on transit uh, pl plus three months from now. That's one thing. Another thing which is very important here in, in this case, especially when we're talking about the Nord Stream 2 versus Ukraine, uh, I, like, I loved very much the red line on the, one of the slides of Georg. This is, to my mind, this is the division bell in Europe. Well, uh, the Pink Floyd forgives me. But it seems to me it tolls, it tolls to indicating to the European Commission that something should be done in terms of reverse, more reverse flows. So improving infrastructure perhaps would be one of the answers to how to deal with the problem of Nord Stream 2. Okay. Because more gas will come from the west to, to the east. And, 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 the, and the last one point which I would like to add. You see, the uh, reforms in Ukraine now went that far that uh, already, as to my knowledge, for foreign companies, including Angie, Trailstone and, uh, and Duf Energy from Switzerland, they're trading gas in, in Ukraine. So it is possible to use the infrastructure in Ukraine. And one of the answers to whether it will be built or not, we, invite, we will apply the third energy package in Ukraine, and then it is possible for the European companies to buy gas in the eastern border of Ukraine with Russia. And then there will be no transit. will be no problem at all. So my question that's, uh, to, to Georg, that's about this division bell. Uh, when and how can this infrastructure can be, in terms of reverse flows, will be built. Thank you. Okay, thank you. So, hmm, um, well, let's, um, I guess, let's just, maybe we'll just run down the panel and if you have a response, because, um, Georg, you got the division bell uh, question, but um, it's a political project. Let's start with Sebastian. Thanks. Uh, of course not. It's uh, based on uh, the demand on the European market for um, uh, more imports of gas. Um, the EU or the Western Europe and Russia have been trading in, in gas since decades, uh, since the 60s, even during Soviet times. Gas was reliably supplied to Western Europe and it's been a profitable trade for both sides. This is only continuation of, uh, of the same tradition, so certainly it's a commercial project. A pipeline has two ends. At the European end, there will be a number of large European companies who are buying the gas. Um, nobody, also uh, Gazprom, would not be building the pipeline if there were not consumers who are interested in buying it, so certainly that is a commercial um, exchange. Severin? Uh one of the questions was, it's a threat to the internal energy market? Is part of the political... I, I think thing? there was all, all, only the, the one on, on commercial or political, and I would just kind of uh, g g give it back. Um, every time uh, a state owns a part of a company, is that then uh, a political project? I would argue, in the last couple of years, the EU has forced Gazprom to act commercially uh, on the European market. We can see that on the price development uh, and uh, other aspects. So I would not... Uh, say that there's no political dimension uh, to the Nord Stream 2 project, there definitely is. 
uh, but it is not kind of non-commercial as well. So it's somewhere in between. And I think we, uh, uh, we should uh, also take the other side into account. And uh, Borbala, I mean, uh, one of the questions raised your idea that actually the long-term answer is to use less gas in the region. Yeah, I can only repeat that, that I think this is the solution. Uh, and then, then um, all these questions of trust uh, against the big players and trust about applicability of EU law is, uh, is solved. But I think this is the, this is the EU's uh, vision as well, that, uh, that we have to become more green. And, um, well, uh, just answering the, the questions that were raised here uh, uh, by the gentleman, um, I think my slides gives uh, more or less the answer why we think that uh, that uh, uh, this project, if you apply it as it is, is uh, bringing benefits to the western part and brings uh, losses to the eastern part on a social level. I'm not talking about the TSOs now, and on a project basis, but on a on a on a, on a social level. And my slides do not even take into account the dimension that uh, Georg mentioned, that uh, there is a room for uh, price increase on behalf of Gazprom when they already have the pipelines in hand. Okay, um, I don't normally uh, go into all the, uh, the ge geopolitics in, 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 in any great detail, but I think it's worth observing this, that um, you've got to wonder about the Gazprom corporate allies who are backing this and the Nord Stream 2 operation itself. I mean, there is the context of the invasion and occupation of Ukraine, the annexation of Crimea. There's 10,000 Ukrainian dead as a result of the, uh, the invasion um, triggered by the Russian and organized by the Russian Federation. And this is a context in which you're proposing to build this, this pipeline by, at the very least, a Russian state-owned company. And there's all this kind of support they're trying to build up for it. But the question you've got to ask is, is something else going to happen? Is Vladimir Vladimirovich going to take some other move? I mean, there's rumblings at the moment about potential uh, uh, coup in, in, in Belarus. That's one issue. Um, is there going to be more action in Ukraine? There seems to be an ups, uptick in the, uh, in the violence. And the problem, I think, for the parts of the German political establishment who've backed this and the people in the commission who've supported it is that you are essentially hoping that Mr. Putin won't go too far because if there is, you know, particularly try to test Trump in his first few months in office, pushing it out, he could easily do something which could just tip it over so that it is impossible to continue with any uh, Russian uh, state-sponsored energy project. And I think there is the geopolitics here are, are, are significant. The situation is heating up. And, where, I mean, aside from all the legal issues, I think there are the underlying political issues that if, for example, uh, Lukashenko is toppled, uh, and particularly if there is an invasion, are we really going to continue with Nord Stream 2? I have my doubts. Equally, if, the, um, uh, if there is a significant uptick in the uh, violence in uh, Ukraine, uh, orchestrated by the Russian Federation, again, would we continue? I mean, there are other uh, elements and actions which may be taken. I mean, there are questions there about the ability to sustain this when the incoming political damage uh, caused to those who are 
pushing this forward becomes so great that you know the SPD and finds it very very difficult to sustain this. Will the Chancellor candidate, Mr. Schultz, say, well, really, we can't continue with this given the the the, uh, the aggression? And I think you know you've got to ask yourself, well. Is that going to happen? Well, we say we're seeing things pushing, we're seeing things moving. You can see why they want to do it. And I think the difficulty is, is how you possibly can isolate yourself from these other actions. And frankly, I don't think you can. I'll stop that. Okay. Um, just uh, an intervention from me. Um, uh, in case anyone doesn't know, you might be hearing that political tensions between the EU and Russia are very tense at the moment. Russian gas flows to the EU are as high as they have ever been. It appears to make no difference. Georg. Um, yeah. any, uh, any comment in terms of the, the structure of the event? Very shortly, we would have involved much more, uh, uh, would have loved to involve much more speakers from much more different backgrounds, have a much longer event, but I think uh, it, it would have been quite, uh, uh, quite difficult for the audience. Um, on, um, on the issue of less gas use in the East, um, I would argue indeed Nord Stream 2 is beneficial for Germany, as, uh, as Bobler and myself try to, uh, to show. Um, and it's potentially increasing prices and reducing security of supply for the East. Now, is the reaction of, uh, uh, of Poland or the, or the Visegrad countries to that to essentially embrace renewables, which has been pushed strongly by Germany, or will the reaction of Central East European countries be to say, well, actually, your energy policy with a renewables policy is, is linked to your domestic agenda. We would like to go with what is secure and what we know, which is coal. And um, essentially, if one side stops the, the energy union uh, promises it makes, then the other side might also kind of renege on them. So I, I think there might be a, um, a bad outcome in which essentially energy union breaking up would not bring back renewables or not bring renewables to Poland, but more coal. Um, one short advertisement is we did with Simona a piece on a market mechanism for security of supply in the European Union um, in which we essentially argue it's possible that you really have a market solution to security of supply by having a separate product for security of supply and being able to, to trade that because we think currently in the current way it's regulated there is no real price and incentive mechanism to bring the right amount of security of supply. And we think it's quite something that, uh, that is very conceptual to think about security of supply. So if you like, you, you can find it on your website. And the uh, last point on pipeline expansions in, uh, inside Germany to, um, to essentially help the Central East European neighbors. As I lined out before, I think in the current regulatory framework, it's not going to happen easily. So there needs to be much political discussion. So I don't know when. Yeah, maybe one short response on the transit fee about Naftogaz. Um, so, I mean, even if Naftogaz um, will, will implement the third energy package, um, and I'm not sure how far the unbundling process is going forward because it seems to be quite slow or even not there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. 
However, um, even then, I mean, even if third energy package is in, is implemented and and for Western companies it's possible to buy gas at the eastern border at Ukraine, even then it's possible, for example, to to distribute kind of revenue cap, for example, on on the very entry uh, on the exit point of um, of Ukraine, and then the same problem still occurs that the exit is very high. The entry is, of course, low because it's beneficial for Ukraine. And then we have even the same situation that the transit fees are at the end quite high. Yeah, with four exits. Yeah. Okay. okay, maybe that can be taken offline. Um, and Shimon? Yeah, well, sh sh shortly about this delivery points. It's, it, it was discussed uh, several times in the Union. Yes, uh, uh, last time during the Czech presidency also, in 2009. Yes, they thought that they would have different agenda, but crisis popped up, so they, they, they swapped. Um, and delivery point at the external border is a very good idea, actually, because then we, we as, a, as a union, it means the companies, will take care of the transit um, uh, problems, yes, uh, I would say, if there are uh, any, and the transit fees. So uh, this is this is exactly what what many exporters to the union do. They just export <laughs> gas to the borders and then let us distribute it through the through the system um, on the market based. And this is exactly opposite direction that uh, we are ob uh, observing with the behavior of some other companies from, from, from East that would like to uh, have influence where exactly gas is delivered, to what point, uh, under what conditions, and the, in the best solution exempted from the, from, the, from the application of the EU law. So points taken, we are backing that, uh, that delivery points should be outside like at the borders, and then the internal market should take care of the of the distribution of gas. That would be fair. Okay, uh, more questions. We'll go around this side. So, uh, the gentleman in the front, behind, and the gentleman in the front here. So. Hi, uh, my, my name is Ilyn Stanev. I work with the Bulgarian newspaper Capital. I have a specific question to Mr. Severin Fisher. You said that um, the, the the construction of a pipeline should, should not be based on arbitrary rules. Uh, how about the South Stream? The European Commission had a very firm opinion on it. It's written already in the infringement procedure against Bulgaria that uh, the, the, last, the last mile in the sea should be regulated, it should be unbundled, transparency of tariffs, and so forth and so forth. Then how this uh, regulation should not be applied to Nord Stream 2? Uh, many would want to argue that because Nord Stream 2 is actually benefiting Germany, it will be allowed. And alternative projects that would benefit different countries are stopped. I mean, against the, uh, the South Stream was the opinion of the Commissioner Jottinger. There was letters from the Chancellor in Berlin. And with Nord, Nord Stream, we see a diff completely different uh, case. It's not arbitrary uh, application of rules, it's hypocrisy. And the gentleman behind? I'll stand up. Uh, my name is Dmitry Semenov. I work as a Russian uh, energy attaché. And since Russia was mentioned several times, I'd like to ask for a couple of uh, comments and one easy question. So, uh, you know, 
well, I, I would say that from a Russian perspective, uh, and I wouldn't deny that, yes, there is a political sense to, to the Nord Stream project, uh, same as it was with uh, Gamal Europe pipeline uh, through Poland, same as it was with Nord Stream, with South Stream, then, uh, and it perfectly meets the, the energy, the basic energy goals of the, energy, uh, of, of the European Union, which is diversification of routes. And even Simon supported diversification of routes. Uh, the, the, fact, the fact of life is the monopoly, the transit monopoly of Ukraine. And speaking about, you know, state-owned companies, Naftogaz of Ukraine is a 100% state-owned company. Uh, there, there is the, well, Peganigea uh, is uh, the same, state-controlled. Sokar is state-controlled. Statoil is state-controlled. So, you know, mixing, mixing all state, all, uh, state companies like, or labeling them with, uh, with uh, black colors is, 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 is not uh, actually fair. Uh, I'll, I'd like to give you some numbers uh, and, you know, not to, be, not to sound biased, I, uh, they are Naftogaz of Ukraine's uh, numbers, estimates, of what are the transportation costs of bringing gas from Russia to Germany by using different routes. So, I'll, I'll say, uh, sorry, I'll, I'll be voicing out numbers, so I'll, I'll be speaking slowly for, for everyone to... to I hope they're not too up. many, yeah. like yeah. the key ones. Okay, yeah, yeah, sure. So, transportation through Nord Stream 1, 48, uh, I, I believe uh, the denomination was, was dollars, but anyway, 48. Yamal Europe, 66. Ukraine, with current Gazprom's contract, 74. New tariffs introduced in Ukraine in 2016, 103, which is 1.5, well, approximately 1.5 times higher than the current transit contract with Ukraine. Yes, there were statements. I'm not sure whether they were introduced in, in the transit tariffs, but there were statements from Ukraine that they are ready to reduce transit tariffs uh, post-2020 to 58, which is approximately two times lower uh, than the 103, which is meant to be applied to transit. It's not, it's not applied to Gazprom because Gazprom clinches to the contract uh, and says that, well, there is the, 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 the legality of, uh, of the contract. But anyway, 58 is still higher than 48 through Nord Stream 1. And that, uh, I think, gives you a clear economic picture of which route is expensive, which is Ukrainian route, and which, which is not. But uh, just a couple of two, two, two short things. Speaking about the antitrust case in Ukraine, that's one of the political risks which, which is uh, being uh, attributed to, to Ukrainian route. Because again, we believe this, this case to be absolutely absurd because Naft uh, uh, Gazprom holds absolutely no commercial, be it transit or whatever activity in Ukraine. The transit in Ukraine is solely done by Ukotransgaz, uh, the subsidiary of Naftogaz of Ukraine, which is 100% owned by uh, the government of Ukraine. Therefore, the whole case is absurd. You know, uh, accusing Gazprom of allegedly ab uh, abusing the transit monopoly, which it doesn't have. It's the Ukrainian side that has a monopoly. Okay. Uh, specifically to... Mm. And a question, Sorry, yeah, maybe? Yeah, yeah. One, uh, one, one, one specific line to, to Ellen Riley and, and a question. Uh, specific to Ellen Riley, uh, I know that we, we like each other. We do, we do. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's absolutely reciprocal. I'd like, I'd, like, I'd like to ask you a question which was uh, raised by our... Uh, sorry, sorry to be... To, to be sorry, sorry for my English. To, to be gone uh, ambassador to UN, uh, Mr. Churkin. 
who was referring to the British uh, permanent rep uh, representative in the UN. And he said the following, uh, that uh, for, for the UK to, to discuss other issues, it's better to give back Gibraltar, to give back Melvin Islands, to give back part of Cyprus, and to give back the Chagos Archipelagos in the Indian Ocean, to name the list, before and which, which will perhaps make your conscience uh, a little bit more clear at, and, may, and, and entitle you to discuss some issues like Ukraine. My, okay, we, yeah, need to, question, we need to move my, it on. Yeah, yeah. It's and not so a history my lesson, question, please. My question is rather easy. Uh, a lot of political arguments which are raised against Nord Stream are actually hiding the economic interests that, that are there. Like, Poles are... Uh, you, you, you've forgotten to mention okay. the Indian the famine. I mean, you couldn't say, enough. please enough. mention the Indian enough. famine. That's what you've why, forgotten. Enough, why, why, are, why are people uh, concerned about Russian gas coming through Nord Stream 2 and are not concerned by Russian gas coming through Ukraine? Okay. Um, there was a question here. Thank you. Kurt Geisert, Association of German uh, SMEs. I have a question for Mr. Sass. Is there a link between North Stream 2 and between the Baltic Sea Marco regional strategy to which Russia belongs by way of St. Petersburg? Thank you. Uh, okay. Um, did you want to reply, like, really briefly? One minute? Can you just write a reply? First of all, it's about tariffs. It's as of today, if it is applied, but, uh, well, Georg said that it is not applied because of the Stockholm arbitrage case, so there we use all tariffs. If, if, but if it is applied, it would, it would constitute today $57.7 that is on the, on the entry-exit tariffs. And if uh, there is a contract extended in t from the 1st of January 2020, it's going to be 5.6, 10 times lower. That's answer to to, to Alan when he was talking about that. And then about the, well, potential of NAFTA gas. Oh, 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 oh sorry, <laughs> Gazprom. If you remember 2008, the capital value of assets of it was $357 billion. Today it is hardly reaches 60. With an uh, with a estimate of budget, uh, well, it's Nord Stream 2 and plus uh, Turkish Stream, don't forget it it will reach approximately $42 billion. Company cannot build it as, it's, as such. And on the 31st of August, there was a hearing in the European Parliament, and I quote, two German politicians said it is not anymore a commercial project, it is a private project. Germans said that in the European Parliament, and then they say, if government will take it up, so we don't need other parliamentarians said, KGB officers to rule the game. Okay. And quote. Thank you. So, there were some questions in there, and I am about to relay them. So, the first question was to Severan, if you remember. It was essentially, why is Nord Stream 2 being treated differently from South Stream? Yeah, thank you. Uh, I think uh, it's pretty simple. The context uh, was a different one. In the context of uh, South Stream, we had intergovernmental agreements um, between uh, governments, and they were scrutinized by the Commission. Uh, the Commission found that in the context of the intergovernmental agreements, there were pro procurements, procurement issues, and uh, that was the reason, basically, why then um, uh, Gazprom cancelled uh, the project. 
It raises, however, I think, uh, an important question, and that is uh, gas security in Southeast Europe. We haven't discussed that, but that is an, uh, an issue we certainly have discussed and have to discuss, and especially with the role of Turkey as transit country, potentially. I think we should um, look at that in a similar way as we discussed today uh, in Nord Stream 2. Okay. And Sebastian, uh, on the Baltic market? Yes, very briefly. I, I, I realize we're far over time already. Uh, there have been a lot of questions and a lot of discussions about issues which some, many of them, I think we've moved fairly far away now from the original topic uh, of Nord Stream 2. But um, what, what I'm happy to realize is that nobody seems to really question here the underlying economic rationale and the demand for the gas. What from our side, I, I, I can assure that it will be a project that is fully implemented on, on, on uh, in full uh, alignment with all applicable laws, international convention, EU law, national legislation, and it will be the, the authorities of the countries responsible who will determine which those laws are that apply. Um, it's, it's not Nord Stream 2 or anybody on this panel who decides that. It's the responsible authorities as it's supposed to be under rule of law. The gentleman from Bulgaria asked about the comparison, comparison between South Stream and, uh, and Nord Stream. And uh, uh, yes, the, the uh, legal framework for the, for the offshore part um, probably would have been uh, the same as for all pipelines that, that lie outside the um, EU and, and uh, come outside the internal market and end at the external border of the internal market. Uh, the reason why uh, um, the infringement procedure at the time against Bulgaria and the, the EU law questions were actually concerning procurement law, not the internal market regulation. But I'm with you on the point that all pipelines... I'm, 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 I'm with you uh, at the point that all pipelines uh, um, un uh, should be regulated exactly on their own merits, uh, equal rules for all of them, and uh, there should not be political exceptions neither for Nord Stream 2 nor for any other pipeline. But it will, you have to have trust in the competent authorities and those other countries, like countries like Finland, Denmark and Sweden who will apply EU law and who are entirely competent uh, to regulate this correctly. These countries have a very good track record in that. As far as the uh, Baltic regional strategy is concerned, uh, from a formal point of view, this is, this is not part of the Baltic regional strategy as such, as it's a pipeline that comes from outside the uh, uh, EU, outside the internal market. But there is a pretty broad outreach that we have in, in the direction of all stakeholders, including the Baltic regional institutions and also the EU institutions that deal with Baltic policies. Okay. Um, and then the remaining question was essentially, uh, why do we have a problem with rushing gas through Nord Stream 2 and not through Ukraine? Did you want to come back on that? or you yes. use? Yeah? Okay. Shimon. Yeah, I, I forgot about the demand forecast. Um, so, as regards the demand and forecast, it's, a, um, it's not about questioning, it's, a, it's a more about the, uh, how much the forecasts usually match the reality, especially in 20 or 30 years perspective. Yes? Ten years ago, nobody uh, could predict the shale gas revolution in the US and the oil shale revolution in several countries and how they would influence the global markets in oil and gas. It influenced to the 
tremendous extent. So we cannot say that in 20 years time, we could have the um, to 100% uh, certainty that there will be there will be exactly the demand for the for the gas at the level of 120 or 130 BCMs. The second thing is is that um, LNG terminals in Europe are used uh, to to the level of 15 or 20 percent on average. So uh, and the new terminals, the exporting terminals, are being built throughout the world. So this is also a very important factor, how we will deal with that. And uh, as you know, uh, both European Commission and uh, member states are uh, keep negotiating the terms of delivering this LNG gas to, uh, to Europe. And the, the, the last thing that is also quite important is also the uh, supply certainty, because, uh, and that was not the matter of the discussion, but uh, I would, uh, I would uh, be very glad to also to discuss in the future the, uh, the, the, the influence of the sanctions, especially in oil and gas sector, on the, exp uh, on the deliveries of gas and the exploration of gas in the forthcoming years, in 20, in 10 years' time, because um, service companies, the, the high technologies, uh, the deep drillings, the arc drillings, the fracturing, the, the horizontal drillings, it is all served, or to the 90 or 60 percent, it's served by the foreign companies that are no longer active in Russia in this respect. Yes. So this is also the huge question mark, what will be the future of oil and gas uh, production uh, when we are forecasting 20 years ahead, yes? Mm -hmm. Okay, um, Alan, would you like to respond in a very short way to Dimitri? I don't know, is that possible? Oh, it's very possible. Not, mean, no. not with a full history of Britain. Well, no, I was just going to say, where does one start? I'm not responsible for the actions, or I don't think the current British government is responsible for the actions of Her Majesty's government in the days of Queen Victoria. Um, I think there is a, there's a limit. There must be a statute of limitations on some of this. Um, the point is, is what we're dealing with is, I mean, I suppose one of the ways to look at this is to say the modern international order was established with the United Nations Charter uh, in 1946. And I think you, vote, you, you argue that the, that is the, the point at which we say all of the states of the civilized world agreed to uh, take a, 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 agree to apply the rules in terms of non-interference and the respect of sovereign rights and sovereign territory. And I think that is the point at which you do have a fairly serious problem. And in fact, if I, I were you, I wouldn't have raised the colonial stuff. If you really wanted to criticize the UK government, I think you would probably have wanted to use the um, Iraq war where you would have had more of an argument. In any event, uh, so I think if you're going to make an argument, I would, I'd use Iraq, not the colonial stuff. Some free legal advice from Alan. And I think that's, 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 a, that's, a, that's a much more uh, stronger argument. You would, you would have a point there. Nevertheless, I think the point about this, and the reason why I raised that issue, was that I said, I don't want to go heavily into the geopolitics, but it's just that if you get more of this, whether it's in Ukraine or in Belarus or wherever, uh, more action, then it's going to be, you know, for a whole host of reasons uh, to do with Russian politics, you get more action in, uh, uh, and more aggression. 
then I think any of these projects, whether it's Nord Stream or anything else, is going to be much more difficult to be sustained. You'll get another round of sanctions, Trump or no Trump, from the US, and you will get um, uh, more, uh, uh, it, well, greater inability for the European Union to agree on any uh, Russian energy project or, in fact, any other form of cooperation with Russia. And really, that's up to the Kremlin. But the point about it is, is if, we, if, if, there, if those rumblings continue, and there is then followed not merely by rumblings, but action, then there will be more trouble. Stop there. Is that yes, that's good. That's good. good. Okay. Right. Okay. Are there any more questions in the room? Andreas, and this will be the last question, and then we'll wrap up. So, Andreas. Is there a oh, is there a microphone? I can stand up. I'm no, is the microphone? Um, Andreas Vansford from uh, Interface Europe. So thank you, Siobhan. Um, power was mentioned by, by some of the speakers. There you go. Thank you. Thank you, Siobhan. Andreas Vansford from Interface Europe. Uh, Power was mentioned by some of the speakers, and we know the decision is in the hands of the Court of Justice. I just wanted to ask you quickly, Sebastian, if Gazprom is allowed to, to increase the flows on Opal, would that change the business case for Nord Stream 2 at all? Thank you. Thanks, Andreas. Uh, I'm sorry I cannot respond to that question because uh, I'm, I'm, as Nord Stream 2, we are not directly parties to to that, uh, to those proceedings, so you'd have to uh, revert to Gazprom directly. Okay, <laughs> so sure, I missed it, checking some logistical things. So, uh, that is the end. It has been an hour and a half. Who knew? It went very quickly. Um, thank you so much for coming. Um, uh, and the presentations you've seen today will be on the Bruegel website. So thanks again for coming, and please join me in welcoming, thanking. Thanking the panelists.